last week. Last week we had been, of course, going through 1 Peter chapter 5, and we got to the part in 1 Peter 5, 1 through 4. <clears throat> we're talking about the description and responsibilities of elders or shepherds, pastors, overseers, bishops, the same people for several different words. Let's go ahead and open up in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the grace that you extend to us, that we have your word in our language, that we can sit down and study and look and remember and apply it to our lives. We don't have to guess at what your will is for our lives. It's right there in black and white. <clears throat> we ask that as we approach your word, you'd give us humble enough hearts to recognize that we all still have to learn, that we're all sitting at the feet of Jesus to learn, and that we have none of us have a corner on wisdom or a corner on knowledge, and we're asking that you fill us with your knowledge and your grace in Jesus' name. <clears throat> so, well, we started off in First Peter chapter five, verses one through four. <clears throat> Last week we, <clears throat> pardon me, I'm having a lot of allergy problems this morning. Last week we took a side excursion to a fee, uh, excuse me, Ezekiel, chapter thirty-four. And we read about the actual job responsibilities of shepherds because sheep haven't changed and the, therefore the job of shepherds hasn't changed. Uh, and then we saw there were seven <clears throat> clearly laid out responsibilities for the shepherds in a flock and that it's to be plural. <clears throat> we saw that confirmed in the New Testament in Acts chapter 28, verses 17 and 20 through 23. Or 20 through 22, I guess. Uh, I'm sorry. X chapter 20, verses 17 and 28 through 30. There we go. I got it right. <clears throat> and what we had started to do last week, <clears throat> now what we promised we would do is we went to, we we're going to go to 1 Peter chapter 3 and talk about the job requirements for being an elder, a pastor, a shepherd. <clears throat> But we only got through three of the six points that we know so far regarding shepherds. The first three were that sheep need a shepherd. And that's true for the four-legged variety as well as the two-legged variety. <clears throat> uh, number two is that God had assigned human shepherds in every dispensation. He assigned people to tend to his flock. He maintained the responsibility <clears throat> as the true shepherd but that he assigned human shepherds who are also sheep in the flock. The third point was that the work of the shepherds has clear definition, and we started on that. So the fourth, fifth, and sixth points are quite brief. They were that shepherds bear responsibility for the job. How an elder does his job, he's going to be called into accounts for it. On uh, Hebrews chapter 13 or 17, it says that they serve as one who has to give account for their stewardship. God's going to hold them accountable. And in, in that particular passage, all I was saying is you want to respond to them in such a way that they can respond in joy to how they're giving accounts for their, their stewardship <clears throat> and not to cause them grief. But the fact is it also means they're facing judgment for their work. Uh, James chapter 3, verse 1 says, don't be in a hurry to be a, a teacher, a master, a person <clears throat> uh, functioning in, in leadership because you're going to be held to a greater accountability, a greater judgment. <clears throat> so 
you need to be aware that shepherds are bearing a particular responsibility for their work or lack of it. And in Ezekiel 34, we saw that <clears throat> the problem in that passage was that the shepherds were not doing their job, and the things they did do, they were doing wrong. <clears throat> and God was holding them accountable. In their particular cases, I'm taking you off the job. You're not going to be able to hold this position anymore. I'm going to do the job myself. You're fired. <clears throat> and the church at Laodicea, Revelation chapter 3, we see the results, the long-term results of shepherds that didn't do their job well. I see a church failing and dying, and God took them out as a church. That didn't mean that any of the believers there lost their relationship with the Lord, their position in Christ. It simply meant that as a church, they were shut down. <clears throat> there was no church in Laodicea anymore. <clears throat> so... Um, the fifth thing is that there's clear guidelines given as to the prerequisites for the job, the qualifications for church leadership, and we're going to look at those today. They're laid out in 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7, actually 1 through 8, because that includes the deacons. If you want to write these down and study them on your own, I would recommend them. <clears throat> 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 8, Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9. And where we started off was 1 Peter 5, 1 through 4. <clears throat> and finally, the sixth point was that Jesus Christ is the good shepherd, the, the chief shepherd. The actual word there in 1 Peter uh, chapter 5, verse 4, when it says the chief shepherd shall appear, the word in Greek is a one word. It, it's like we say archangel. Well, this is arch shepherd, arch poimen, uh, the the top dog, the, the head shepherd. <clears throat> but it uses that word arche, meaning the, the, the chief, <clears throat> which doesn't work out well in English, but that's why it's translated that way. Uh, Jesus claimed to be the good shepherd in John chapter 10. He laid out what he does as the good shepherd as opposed to a hireling that isn't really concerned with the flock. Uh, the under-shepherds are supposed to be such that they reflect the character and the commitment of the true shepherd. So rather than a hireling, you want somebody whose heart is, is focused on that flock. Uh, there's lots of pastors that are seeing each church they're in as a stepping stone trying to get to a megachurch someplace where they make lots of money and get lots of worldwide honor. Well, I got no such uh, aspirations. I've never wanted that. I don't have any desire for that. Uh, in fact, I didn't ask to be a pastor here. I've been teaching here for 20 years. When Pat got too sick to serve, he asked Richard to take over, and Richard said, I will. Chet will serve with me. So there I am. And then Richard died on me. <clears throat> so I have no aspirations for you know, a higher calling. This is it. <clears throat> So we need to talk about how to identify that kind of a person because they are supposed to come from within the flock. And we'll talk about that as we get to it. <clears throat> the shepherds we seek to identify among us are actually those that step in and begin to serve. They begin to carry out the responsibilities of a shepherd. We see the responsibilities of a shepherd in Ezekiel 34. And when anybody, any young man, tells me, yeah, you know, I was thinking about getting into the ministry, the first place I send them is Ezekiel 34. Why? Because I want them to see what the job requirements are. Not the, not the 
pre-qualifications or whatever you call it, the prerequisites for the job, the responsibilities of the job. Is this what you really want to do? Because if it isn't, don't do it. <clears throat> I had a young fellow tell me that the reason he wanted to be a youth pastor is because you get to go on you know, skiing trips and rafting trips and stuff like that, and the church pays for it. <sighs> Holy mackerel, kid. Go find yourself a real job. <clears throat> that, was his, that was his reason for wanting to do that job, because <clears throat> he thought it'd be fun. All right, so the shepherds we seek to identify among us are those who actually step in and begin to function in several or all of the listed responsibilities. Maybe they're teaching. Uh, I've been teaching Bible for 45 years, I guess. <clears throat> oh, but that didn't mean I was a shepherd the whole time. I served part way that way, but that wasn't, you know, I didn't have that official responsibility. <clears throat> Primarily, I was a teacher. Uh, maybe they're caring for members of the flock in other ways. Maybe they're gifted in management and they can easily see needs in the church or needs <clears throat> in the church facility or physical needs in people's lives. <clears throat> Those who specialize in meeting the physical needs of the church are called deacons. The word deacon. Uh, Diakonon, singular, just means servant. It's one who serves. That's exactly what it means. There is no male and female of it either. We talk about deaconesses in some churches. If a lady's serving in that capacity, she's a deacon. There is no deaconess. We, I know we have that word in English, but I'm just telling you that in the Greek there was no gender-specific term. Okay? When you look at Romans chapter 16, it opens up talking about this lady named Phoebe. Uh, which is to me a weird name because it's the name of a type of bird that, I don't know, man. But anyway, that was her name. And she was a servant to the church. And if you look it up in Greek, it flat says she was a deacon. <clears throat> and they asked her, they asked these people not only to treat her well, but to look after her and if there was anything she needed for her ministry to make sure she had it. She was, she was in serious service. Okay. So that's what a deacon is. Uh, you see it plural more often because it is a plural responsibility, and the word diakonos is the plural. It just means servants. <clears throat> but they specialize in taking care of the physical needs of the body of Christ. Those that serve the Lord, that all of these serve the Lord by serving the local assembly, watching over and managing the physical needs of the assembly. Those that serve by taking care of the spiritual needs and watching over the doctrinal stance of the church and whether people are creeping in and teaching false doctrine or uh, there are people that are hurting that need counsel or anything like that. Uh, they have a, a special responsibility and they're called an elder or a shepherd or a pastor or a presbyter or a bishop or an overseer. Those are six words in English that all, respond, all talk about the same guy. <clears throat> and they, they're always plural. Always. Every time you see it in Scripture, it's the elders, plural, of the church, singular. Okay. Uh, there's only one counterexample, and it's a bad one. In Third John, verses 8 and 9, I think, you can read about a guy named Diotrephes. It says he wanted the preeminence. He wanted to be the top dog. He wanted to be the head cheese. Okay. And it was a bad thing. It's the only example in Scripture of a singular leader in a church. <clears throat> So there is some overlap between these two roles, between deacons and elders. Elders are primarily tasked with the spiritual feeding of the church. And in fact, the gift of teaching is one of the job requirements for an elder or a bishop, a, a overseer, <clears throat> shepherd. 
So we'll talk about the office of deacon separately at another time. And meanwhile, we're supposed to look for those who are caring for the flock, comforting, blessing, feeding, helping, protecting, and in general, showing that they are committed to the well-being of that flock, <clears throat> as opposed to just being committed to their own benefit. The specific accusation of God against the shepherds in Ezekiel 34 that we read last week were that they were feeding themselves instead of the flock. They were taking advantage of the flock to their own benefit. <clears throat> we hear that accusation today as well. I've frequently heard people make the accusation against Christians in general, saying, they're only after your money. And sorry, there's times it turns out it's true. Uh, Aaron told me last week, and again, he told me before, but about a guy that he knew of that was the pastor of some mega church, and his wife got sick, and people were you know, thinking about bringing meals, and the news went out, yeah, if you want to prepare a meal for the, for the pastor's wife, just prepare it and let us know, and we'll send his limo and driver to pick it up. People started to wake up at that point and realize, whoa, what's going on here? Why does the pastor have a limousine and a driver picking up meals that he needs because his wife is sick? Something wrong. <clears throat> okay. And, and, you know, we've seen examples of that. We don't want to see that. <clears throat> uh, well, what we're looking for is those that by their track record in our observation, not just letters of recommendation, there is an account in the scripture of letters of recommendation, but the person they were recommending was not a pastor. He was not an elder. He was being sent there by Paul with this letter of introduction because he was sent to further teach the church and to ordain elders there. It was a letter authorizing him to do the work he was sent to do. He's a very young man. It was Timothy. Uh, but that's not the same as the work of an elder. An elder or a shepherd is supposed to be known by that assembly and by the unbelievers in that neighborhood. We're going to see that. That's one of the requirements. <clears throat> so uh, Paul was told Timothy to find, <clears throat> I skipped a line here, we're looking at people that are showing themselves faithful and gifted to shepherd the flock and specifically to feed the flock. Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, he says, that which you've learned of me among many witnesses, you teach to, you find faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Okay, not just teach anybody. Yeah, you teach everybody. But you're specifically looking for those that are gifted to take that spiritual understanding of the word of God and, and pass it on to others so other people can understand it. And it is a gifting. There, there's teachers that, that somehow, when they open up the Word, everybody starts to understand. And that's a valuable thing. I've, I've had guys teach the Word that I sat there and thought, you know what, it's a good thing I already understood this because you're not making a lick of sense. You know, they, they know it and they understand it, but they're not doing a good job of transmitting it. Uh, the guy I'm thinking of in particular was not in a position of leadership. He just wanted to be. And every chance, chance he got, he'd stand up and take 45 minutes, an hour, telling people about a passage of Scripture. And I took notes. I listened carefully. And I came away thinking, you're not gifted to teach, my friend. Sorry. <clears throat> I didn't tell him that because it's not my business to tell him that. <clears throat> but we're to find people that are gifted that way, feed them heavily, 
teach them so they raise up and start blessing the others with that gift. These are the ones that God's going to raise up to be shepherds in the church one way or another. It doesn't require college. It doesn't require seminary degrees. It does require a faithful heart, spiritual giftedness, and a commitment to the flock of God. We need to keep our eyes open for that kind of an individual and pray that God will raise them up among us. <clears throat> if you're one of those people that God's called to this work, then you need to study all these passages we're talking about. Go back and read it for yourself and see how you, what you need to do before the Lord to strengthen yourself in that way so that God can use you to prepare for the job of shepherding. I don't know if you ever noticed, but the preparation that God gave Moses to shepherd his people for 40 years in the desert was to shepherd a bunch of sheep and goats for 40 years prior. Yeah, on the backside of the desert, he was a shepherd for Jethro's sheep and goats, and that's what he did for 40 years. He learned, learned on the job. Okay, so let's talk about these job requirements. <clears throat> if you turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, please. 1 Timothy, it's right after 2 Thessalonians, which is right after Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and 1 Thessalonians. 1 Timothy chapter 3, we're going to read verses 1 through 7. <clears throat> this is a true saying, <clears throat> if a man desires the office of a bishop, bishop is translated from the Greek word episkopos, it means an overseer, a supervisor, that's all it means. It's, the, it's one of the th three words that's used to describe the position of a pastor or a shepherd a leader in the church. <clears throat> if he desires the office of a bishop, he desires a good work. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, vigilant, sober, of good behavior, given to hospitality, apt or able to teach. We're going to talk about that one. Not given to wine, no striker, not greedy of filthy lucre. Some, some translated uh, sordid gain. It means he's not after the money. But patient, not a brawler, not covetous, one that rules well his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity. For if a man knows not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, lest being lifted up with pride, he fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must have a good report of them which are without, unbelievers in the community, them that are without, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Okay, and then it goes on to talk about deacons. <clears throat> so, I don't know if you managed to keep count there, but God just named 17 things that are job requirements for an elder. <clears throat> and it's not a smorgasbord where you get to take your plate through the line and pick out the ones you want. No, they all have to be there. If, if, if they're collapsing in one of these, eventually you're going to find out they're collapsing in others as well. Problems don't just show up in one place. <clears throat> so first thing he lists is that they desire the job. If you have to twist the guy's arm to get him to serve, you don't want him in service. You know, if, if he's functioning and he's willing to serve and just hasn't pushed to get that office, that's different. If you're saying, look, bud, we're watching your life and you're doing the whole job as a shepherd, we'd like you to step into the shoes here and start preaching once in a while and start taking some of the uh, responsibilities here and he says oh, yeah okay then then you got a guy that probably belongs there if you if you if you got to keep talking to him and he keeps dragging his feet and saying no you know I don't know I don't know well then don't 
He doesn't want it. Don't do it. God has to move his heart so he wants it. Now, have there been exceptions in God's word? Yes. Jeremiah absolutely did not want to be a prophet for God. And when God called him to be a prophet to the nation of Israel, he backed out hard. He said, you got the wrong guy. And God said, no, I haven't. I've ordained you to this work since before you were born. Before I formed you in your mother's womb, I ordained you to this work. Don't tell me you're too young. Okay. Now there's a job interview. Okay. So the first one is desiring the job. The second one is blameless. It means above reproach. It literally means there's nothing in his life that one could lay hold of and make a a valid or legitimate accusation. It embraces everything that follows. It's it's a kind of a catch-all. This list is not a smorgasbord, as I already said. They all have to be there. So this blameless thing covers everything that follows. The next one, it says, husband of one wife. Now, this one over the years has invited controversy. Uh, Some people take it so far as to say he has to have been married, and he has to still be married, and he can only have been married once. Okay, let's see. So if he's not married, he can't serve. If he's married and his wife dies, he can't serve. If he's married and his wife you know, runs off with the traveling gypsy circus, uh, he can't serve. Okay, that's a little excessive because I don't think Paul was married. He might have been married and his wife might have died, but Paul was serving across the board. Uh, and as far as we know, he didn't have a wife. But there, there's churches that take it that way. We don't. Uh, there are those that teach it only means a one-woman man. And I can see why they would say that because the, the way it reads in Greek, the, the Greek word under means a man, but it's frequently translated husband. And the Greek word gune means a woman. It's where we get the word gynecologist, in fact. <coughs> uh, it only means a woman, but it's frequently translated wife because that's the way they use those words. They use them interchangeably. So while it literally says a one-woman man and could mean that, a one-woman kind of a man, see, he's never trying to two-time. He's not a polygamist. That might mean exactly what it, it might be exactly what it means. That is literally what it says. I try to compare the whole context here. Everything else in this list is a character reference, not a track record. I've known men, oh, Pat James was an example. Yeah, he was divorced. The reason he was divorced is because his wife was suffering from schizophrenic psychosis or something, some kind of double word like that, and had to be institutionalized, and the state of California would not take care of her unless he divorced her. She had to be in a, in a hospital for the insane and had to be under constant care. He absolutely could not afford to do it himself, and the state of California would not pay for it unless he divorced her. So he had to divorce his wife. In fact, he visited her there all the time, and the last time he saw her, uh, he was walking down a hallway with her, and there was another guy there, and she suddenly jumped on his back and started biting him in the neck, and it took five or six orderlies to get get her off of him. She was flat out crazy. Okay. And she died not long after that in that hospital. It grieved him terribly. He did not want to divorce his wife. He was a one-woman man. I would certainly not hold that against him. And when he finally remarried, he, he proved his faithfulness for the rest of his life. 
Okay. So I take that whole context and apply it that way. You can look at it and think what you want. Uh, Number four, vigilant. Number four and five kind of go together. Vigilant and sober. Vigilant, so this is one we're all to embrace. Over in 1 Peter 5, 8, the command is, Be sober, be vigilant, for your enemy, the devil, walketh about as a a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. That's to everybody. And those two things, vigilance and sobriety, regarding the Christian life and regarding the work of the shepherd, are required here. There is a deadly enemy prowling the world. An elder has to be continually aware of the dangers to the flock. The next one, sober. Same idea. You have to take life pretty seriously and taking the work of the shepherd absolutely seriously. It's not a game. Okay? Every once in a while I get accused of being too serious. Well, guess what, guys? That's because the responsibility scares me to death. I look at this and I think, well, Lord, you better take care of your flock because I can't do it on my own. He says we're to be vigilant and sober. The sixth one is of good behavior. An elder is to be setting an example for the rest of the flock. We saw that also in 1 Peter 5.3. They're not lording it over the flock, but living as examples for the rest of the flock. They should be able to say with Paul in 1 Corinthians 11.1, I think, he says, be followers of me as I am of Christ. Paul was saying, do as I do. Okay. I don't know if I can say that or not. I want to. I want to be of good enough behavior that I that if I had to, I could say that. Um, number seven, given to hospitality. The Greek word here literally means love of the stranger. Phila is the, the brotherly love kind of love, and xenon is the unknown, the stranger. Philozenon is, is the word there. It means the love of the stranger. It means that you treat a newcomer, a stranger, with open arms just like their brother in the Lord, because they might be. And if they're not, you still want to love them, because there's somebody Jesus died to, died for, no matter what. You've never met somebody Jesus didn't die for. I can guarantee that. <clears throat> Apt to teach. This is another one that is open to a little bit of controversy, but as far as I can tell, it's the only requirement that is a gifting issue. The reason I say that, if it only means able to teach, which is what it literally says, is there anybody here that feels like they could not teach a child how to tie their shoes? I don't see any hands. So we're all qualified, right? Well, actually, I don't think that's what it's talking about. Everybody's able to teach something. I learned stuff from kids and from unbelievers and from people that I consider in most categories kind of foolish all the time because it turns out everybody's got something that they could teach somebody else so that's not what it's talking about in context here what we're talking about is the ability to go ahead and feed the flock just like he told Timothy these are the people you're looking for is people that when you feed them they gain the ability to feed others okay and not everybody's gifted that way but that's why I think this particular one is a gifting It has to do with the ability to understand and transfer understanding of spiritual truth from God's word so that others can profit thereby. Some translations say qualified to teach. That's not what it says. It says, it literally says teaching. Uh, the, The Greek word didactikon 
It simply means teaching, even in modern Greek. And a teacher is didaskalos. It's a different, different word, but he's to be functioning as a teacher in the word. That's something you're looking for. Is he functioning as a teacher? That doesn't mean necessarily standing up in front of a group and teaching. If he can sit down with somebody else and explain the word so they understand it, he's teaching. Okay? If he consistently can sit down and explain the word so they understand it, he's teaching. And you want to catch on to that kind of stuff and think, okay, that guy's a teacher. Maybe we ought to watch him. Maybe he's going to grow into a position of responsibility here. Let's feed that. Okay? Number nine, not given to wine. <clears throat> this one seems easy to understand. Seems obvious, but it's reiterated elsewhere as not given to much wine. In other words, he's not a drunkard. He's not addicted to drink. And I expect we could extend that to other social drugs as well. It's just that alcohol was about the only social drug they had access to in those days. And by the way, it's accessible in just about every culture in the world, usually to the detriment of that society. Not everybody sits down and has a nice glass of Pinot Noir at, at dinner. Uh, most of them get a bucket of brew and get blasted. And that goes for, you know, Papua New Guinea, once they found out it was cheaper to, to grow dope than it was to make alcohol out of their starch, whatever they had, sweet potatoes, uh, they started growing dope. And that's a big problem there now. In fact, they quit growing coffee because coffee was pretty labor-intensive and marijuana was not only less labor-intensive but much more cost-effective. So that's becoming a major crop there. Something that, you know, Jim Burdett and his wife Judy had face all the time. Uh, I, I don't think we're talking about dependencies on a medicine. We're talking about addictions to a social drug for entertainment purposes. Why do I say that? Because I've known missions that if you were dependent on any kind of a drug, then they didn't want you. Okay, that included insulin, and included, uh, you know, uh, what do you call those things? H hormone replacement medications for people that had had surgeries that removed their thyroid or their ovaries or whatever. Uh, it, it, they basically they considered that drugs. And when I heard it, I was furious. I thought, you better not have made that decision while you got a cup of coffee in your hand, bud. Because that one's a drug, too. And if you feel like you're a little grumpy until you've had your second cup of coffee in the morning, then you fall into that category more than the guy that is on an antidepressant or whatever it is. Okay. Anyway, I think that's what we're talking about here. <clears throat> the next one, number 10, no striker. means not a violent person. It's not one who resorts to violence to ins ins assert his will or to settle a dispute. It does not forbid self-defense. It does not forbid military service, police service, etc. cetera. Uh, uh, there can be a police officer who has never been in a fight in his life outside of his job as a police officer. He's trained to do that job, and given the necessity, he'll do it, but that's just not who he is as a person. Uh, and I like that. I like to see a person in authority who was assigned that authority but wasn't just looking for a chance to be the big boss. And I've known some guys like that too that I thought, please don't hire him as a police officer. You give him a gun and a badge, he's gonna kill somebody. I've known some guys like that. But I've known the other variety too. He's just a good, solid individual and he's gonna seek to uphold the law and he won't, he won't do anything violent unless he's absolutely called upon to do it. He's not a violent person. That's what we're talking here, okay? 
Uh, <clears throat> number 11, not greedy of filthy lucre. Some translations say sordid gain. He's not in the church for the sake of personal gain. Money is not an issue. There is no avarice or greed in his character. <clears throat> Number 12, patient. Now, I personally think this is actually a mistranslation. It's translated from the Greek word epiake, and it's the only place that's translated patient. Usually it's translated gentle, and many of the newer translations translate it that way. That's correct. And it goes right along with the next thing because the next one is not a brawler. They're, they're, it means not contentious. It's not just talking about physical fighting, which we call a brawl, but a person who just always got to argue about everything. They're, they're not a patient, gentle person. <clears throat> okay. So this word that's translated patient means gentle in spirit, not just with their hands. And not a brawler means not contentious, not always getting into arguments, not, not trouble hunting, not belligerent, not argumentative. Okay, It literally means without striving. It could cover physical fighting, all, absolutely, but it mainly is just your personality. So all these are character traits. Number 14, not covetous. <clears throat> this is similar to the one about not greedy of sordid gain. <clears throat> it literally means free from the love of money. The, the Greek word there, it uses that prefix phil again, which is for a, a love and affection toward. But the last part is argurion, which means silver, the love of silver. He likes money too much. You know, he's thinking this way all the time. Okay, that's not what we want. You don't want someone who's covetous. <clears throat> By the way, over in Colossians, he says that that covetousness is idolatry. Idolatry. <clears throat> Number 15, one who rules well his own house. This is strictly about family life, home life. How does he handle his own wife and kids? How does he treat them? How does he make decisions there? And what have the results been? Now, what about if somebody did well as long as their kids were home, but their kids, once they got out of the house, took off and did their own thing? All of us know somebody that was a godly parent and whose children, after the fact, took off. Okay, that happens. You know. And that's not what it's talking about here. He's talking about in his home, how does he manage things there? Once they're not under his authority anymore, he can't manage them at all. They are now responsible for how they're managing their own life. <clears throat> Number 16, not a novice. There's a certain level of maturity and experience that needs to be in place before a man should be considered for leadership. It's not just talking about physical age. It's talking about spiritual maturity. There's some people that never grow up, and I don't mean that in a funny sense, Grow up, buddy. Uh, I mean that there are certain people to whom the years bring only age, not wisdom. If they haven't learned some spiritual wisdom and, and maturity, then you don't want them in a position of looking after the needs of other people. Because it's, usually as that maturity develops, a man who's gifted to serve in that capacity begins serving. They start taking responsibility and being responsible and faithfully discharging responsibility, whatever they have. How a person takes responsibility and how they then carry it out, faithfulness, that is the measure we're looking for in terms of maturity. <clears throat> if you appoint an immature believer to appoint a position of responsibility, they can get pretty puffed up about it, and Satan can use that to trip them up. 
and ruin the testimony of somebody you were hoping to see in a position of responsibility. So don't, you're setting a snare for them if you do that. Be careful <clears throat> not to grab onto somebody who's really not ready for the job. Okay. Uh, number 17, the last one in First, in, uh, first Timothy 3 says, having a good report of them which are without. And what it's talking about is how does the unbelieving community in your area see this guy? If they see him coming and think, oh, no. Well, that's not such a good thing. And I, Ann and I knew a guy that way. And people out in the community, unbelievers, told me I just groan when I see him coming because he always wants a heavy discount because he's a pastor. That's not okay. Okay. If you're developing a bad responsibility, a bad, excuse me, relationship with the unbelievers in the community, you're not being a good pastor. And this also rules out hiring somebody in from elsewhere just on the strength of letters of recommendation because they don't have any relationship with the unbelievers in your community. And that's what he's asking for here. And if the unbelievers in your community don't know him, the believers in your church don't know him either. See? You don't just hire somebody because I got 10 letters of recommendation and they're all 100%. Yep, I've seen some guys like that. I don't know who they paid to write those letters, but they sure didn't measure up. <clears throat> okay. The unbelievers are dealing with the pastor usually strictly on secular matters. And if they find him to be a blessing wherever he shows up, you know, then that's a good thing. If they find him to be a total pain to deal with, then maybe there's a problem. It depends on partly on why. But So all these requirements that we just looked at are also reiterated or restated over in Titus, those passages I told you about. We'll address those passages as well maybe next week. So let's wind things up here. What we just looked at are principles from God's Word. That's nice music. Don't shut it off. I shut mine off before church because mine doesn't make nice music. It sounds just like a ringing telephone. I'm an old guy. <clears throat> These are principles from God's Word. They're not methods. We don't put up a checklist and say, yep, got that one, got that one, got that one. These are principles that we are supposed to learn and apply in real life. All right, what's the difference between principles and methods? Well, if... If our methods are built on the principles of God's word, the methods are going to be good. But if our methods begin to replace the principles of God's word, they're not good. Okay. For instance, if a person prays to receive Christ on the basis of their faith, they just place their faith in his blood at Calvary to pay for their sins, there's nothing wrong with that. But if they think that praying that prayer is going to save them, that is wrong. See, because placing their faith in his shed blood at the cross is what saved them. They're just saying thank you now. Okay. So you can replace the real thing with something that sounds good. Don't get mixed up on that. Hudson Taylor said, if God's work is done in God's way, it'll never lack God's provision. He was a famous missionary, but I think that was pretty solid from a, from a scriptural point of view. Okay, so we've been given job descriptions, we've been given instructions that come along with it, and if we don't look at God's description of how to do the job and the instructions of how to do the job, then we're doomed to failure because we're not doing it God's way. <clears throat> Looking back over the series of tasks that we talked about in shepherding, feeding, leading, seeking, binding up, 
uh, healing, guarding against predators, etc. How do you do each of those? Well, we go to God's Word and find out. It's not just up for grabs. Uh, in uh, Psalm, oh, I can't think of which verse now. It says, there's a way that seemeth right unto a man. At the end, their way is the way of death. That's what says what happens when we don't do it. The way, uh, uh, excuse me, it's in Proverbs, Proverbs 14, 12. It says, there's a way that seems right to a man, but the ends thereof is the way of death. If we don't seek God's way to do things, then ultimately we're bringing destruction on ourselves. Churches have fallen into disarray and finally just fallen apart and died because they weren't following God's word. They got some good ideas. They got a set of bylaws. And I had a guy chewing me out. You're not doing this the Baptist way. And I said, well, where do I find a book that tells me the Baptist way then? Well, he couldn't answer. I said, you know what? I'm going to try doing it God's way because that's the only thing I got. I got God's word on how to do it God's way. And I don't have a book on how to do it the Baptist way or whatever it was. You know, I, and who cares anyway? Now, if their way is the same as God's way, cool. But why don't we just do it God's way then? I don't want to do it man's way. Now, we can find both scriptural examples and principles by which to guide our efforts. And we can build our methods and what we do on the basis of God's principles. But if we get that backwards, and we've got our methods, and we try to justify it by stamping God's will on it from some obscure verse that kind of sounds like it, that's not okay. So what we're trying to learn here is how to recognize leadership growing up in the body and how to, to identify and feed them so they grow up and become the leaders of the next generation. You know, I, I got news for you guys. I'm going to die. Your other pastor already did die. In fact, two of your other pastors already did die. And, you know, that's, that's what's in store for all of us. So whether we still have leadership in place and moving forward and teaching God's word as the word of God is up to us to recognize and feed leaders as they're growing up and taking that responsibility. Okay. Let's go ahead and pray and we'll close. Father in heaven, we ask for your mercy as we try to apply your word, your truth to our lives. And as we look at our church and what we stand for and what you want us to stand for and how we're serving and we're the, the work we're supporting and what we're trying to do in, in our lives. We ask that you would open our eyes, open our eyes and help us to understand uh, what you'd have us to do and how to do it. Apply your word to our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen.